Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. 20 years ago, Microsoft was considered an evil empire, scheming to monopolize personal computer usage around the world. And as a karmic payback, they were severely punished by the U.S. Justice Department in a rather costly antitrust battle. Five years ago, having ignored the rise of smartphones and social media altogether, the organization grew to be seen as an irrelevant has-been. So today, it's quite astonishing that Microsoft is once again the world's most valuable company, with a market cap exceeding $1 trillion. And what happened over the past five years at Microsoft will be the focus for today's podcast, and it starts with the naming of Satya Nadella as CEO. Many of you will recall that Microsoft's former CEO, Steve Ballmer, had a reputation for being a hyper-enthusiastic cheerleader for his sales force, but also for creating a cutthroat workplace that pitted people on the same team for recognition, pay, bonuses, even for keeping their jobs. And for reasons we're about to discuss, in 2014, Microsoft elevated a leader whose instincts were really the antithesis of Ballmer's. And out of the gate, Nadella chose to partner with companies previously treated as rivals. He eliminated the stack ranking system that had killed internal collaboration and cooperation and drove a lot of great employees away. And he moved away from the company's legacy products and services in favor of new ones, even though Microsoft initially lacked the skill set needed to pull this off. In a nutshell, Nadella's big move was to fully reinvent his company's culture, an inherently hard thing to do when you've got well over 100,000 employees working all over the world, and he was willing to take some strategic risks. My guest today is London Business School professor Herminia Ibarra, who, along with her colleague Adam Jones, just completed a deep dive study into the reasons why Nadella has been so spectacularly successful. And the core takeaway these researchers give us is that Microsoft has proved positive that very large organizations can indeed reinvent themselves, but only when leaders have the vision and courage to take bold action. So I'm excited to dig into the research and particularly the lessons that we all can take to our organizations. But let me first introduce Herminia. Herminia Ibarra is the Charles Handy Professor of Organizational Behavior at the London Business School. Prior to joining the London Business School, she served on the faculties at INSEED and at the Harvard Business School. An authority on leadership and career development, Thinker 50 ranks Ibarra among the top management thinkers in the entire world. Herminia is the author of best-selling books, including Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader, and Working Identity, Unconventional Strategies for Reinventing Your Career. She writes regularly for the Harvard Business Review, as well as business publications like the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. Born in Cuba, Ibarra received her MA and PhD from Yale University, where she was a National Science Fellow. And we are extremely honored to have her join us here today. And so a very warm welcome to you, Herminia Ibarra. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, thank you. I would like to start by asking you if you could define Microsoft's culture before Satya Nadella became CEO. So it's well known that it had employed this command and control style of leadership, one which ended up driving away a lot of talented people and killing employee engagement. So can you give us a quick overview of what it was like to work at Microsoft maybe prior to 2014? And then tell us what source of enlightenment influenced the company to pick someone so different than Steve Ballmer as its next CEO. 
All right. Let me just start by saying I wasn't there at Microsoft prior to 2014, right? But I read the press and I read what people were saying about them and I heard it from others. And the biggest thing was that it had become a very political organization. In fact, there was an infamous cartoon circulating about the organization structure of different tech companies. And the diagram for Microsoft basically showed the different business units pointing guns at each other. (laughs) The competition had become internal. And that is one of the things that most affected the departure of people and affected their capacity to be innovative. With regard to source of enlightenment, I think when an organization realizes that it's time for change, you know, I think everybody had come around to understanding that the era of Windows and Office on a desktop, the old Microsoft vision, that was long gone. And so when you are looking to make a change, you look for a contrast And I think it's fair to say that the two CEOs are very different stylistically. But I think it's also important to point out that Satya Nadella was running the cloud business before he became CEO. And so it's not just an issue of his personal qualities. He was really in the area, which a lot of people had already started to see was the future of Microsoft. And this was a nascent area for Microsoft. It wasn't the core. It wasn't the inner circle around Windows And so that allowed him, even as an insider, to have a bit of an external perspective. If he had been somebody who managed in an identical way to Steve Ballmer, would he still have been picked? In other words, are you saying that it's almost a bonus that he happened to manage in a very different way and change the culture? that they would have picked them because of the cloud business expertise? Not exactly. Not exactly. I think there's a lot of different things going on. And now we're getting into part two of the story. But I think it's not trivial that he came out of the cloud business and that he had a particular vision for Microsoft that had to do with everything the cloud enabled. And I think the culture change that he was able to lead and direct was not just due to his own personal qualities as a leader, which I'll get to. It was also due to his ability to link the need for a different way of operating, which he was going to exemplify in terms of the business opportunity that had become available with the cloud. I think it's important to realize that his message was a very sophisticated message. The message was, we have a huge opportunity out there that has to do with new technology in the cloud. And we're going to miss it if we don't start operating differently, if we don't stop the politics, if we don't start taking risks and learning from our mistakes. Because in order to seize this opportunity, we have to become a lot better at learning how to do things that we don't know how to do. We're great at executing flawlessly on everything we've perfected through the decades, but that's a different story than learning how to do new things. And so that's where his little phrase about shifting from being know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. Now, then you have to reflect, what does it mean to be a learn-it-all? A learner is somebody, as opposed to a know-it-all, is somebody who's humble who will admit what he or she doesn't know, who will listen to others, who will collaborate with them because he or she realizes is in the world today that bits and pieces are in different silos and in different parts and the problems are more complex and they're different than the ones we used to face 
before. And so I can't command and control it, not just because it's not an attractive style, but because the task before us is one of learning and learning requires a very, very different approach to leading. So I want to dig into that a little bit in a moment. But before I do, I want to go back to your original comment about Microsoft having a very political environment. So how did that get created? And can you kind of give us a quick definition of what it means to have a political culture the way that they did? Yeah, I think in most places it starts out in a very understandable way. You have an organization that becomes successful with a particular way of doing things and with particular products. And they get very focused on doing more of that and scaling it and doing better and kind of everything starts to coalesce around that. And so those are the strategic businesses and the people that are associated with those things are the powerful people. They're the kingpins. They're the ones that are bringing in the revenues. They're the ones that understand the customers. And so over time, resources and status go to those things and kind of inadvertently other things don't get as much love and attention. And people who obviously are trying to also manage their careers, they learn very quickly that they need to get support and resources and connections to those people who have that power in the organization. And that's classically how companies miss the ball when new technologies come around because they're so geared to doing what they've done well before. So you nailed it. And so it brings out the next question, which is, if you were guiding CEOs on how to avoid getting into that trap, in other words, how do you sustain a line of business that is driving your greatest form of revenue while still being open and not being so averse to shutting people down who aren't aligned to the primary breadwinner? You know, Mark, I have to tell you, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> that's, that's Clay Christensen's innovator's dilemma. That's the ambidextrous mm -hmm. organization. And we have all these terms to talk about it, but it isn't a simple structural solution as in, you know, put the creative people here and put the ones who are going to execute and drive it through at great margins there. There isn't a simple answer to that. I think Satya has an interesting answer to that. And he's saying that it's in the culture. He's saying that there's no way you're ever going to have the right answer forever on end. And so what you need is to have a culture that allows you to ask and say, <laughs> maybe we should try this, that is more inclusive, that allows people to make mistakes, that has processes. For example, you know, part of this is structural too, but that has processes for appraising people's performance that allows into it the fact that innovation processes are just not as predictable as when you're doing something that is rolling out product or service that you already know how to do very well. And so there's just a lot of tweaking of the basic organization itself, but there has to be a kind of almost a software, which is the culture that says what we're going to value here is learning new things. And then you have to start aligning a lot to it. Now, I might be jumping, but I can give you an example that comes from the case study that I did about Jean-Philippe Courtois when he was and still is running the sales organization. 
they were already way into the cultural transformation at Microsoft and had really changed a lot of behaviors. But they realized that one of the things that was still reinforcing the old was the way they did quarterly business reviews, in particular, the most important one of the year, the mid-fiscal year quarterly review. And that was still kind of a leftover from the old days of Microsoft, where you put on a big show and it kind of cascaded up to headquarters and people spent months preparing big packs of overheads and rehearsed it for (laughs) weeks and weeks on end and spent a lot of time really putting on a good show in which then senior managers had to ask incisive questions that allowed them to detect whether people knew their business inside out or not. And that was all for show, particularly in a day and age when they have smart tools that allow them to see on a real-time basis what's happening with the businesses and with the key customers. And so they eliminated that, which was really a very iconic thing that happened year in and year out at Microsoft, you know, that made or broke careers. People had their debut in these things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Mm -hmm. And they just had to come to realize that that was not reinforcing a learn-it-all conversation, a conversation where you just said, all right, what did we learn here? What can we pull out? What can we use somewhere else? People told me it felt like a test. It felt like being in school again. It felt like you were getting a trick question, and that was not in sync with the learn-it-all culture of growth mindset that they have tried to instill at Microsoft. In reading the paper, I was feeling that stress, the stress that goes into preparing and the anxiety of, am I going to nail this? Am I going to be seen well? And and then your conclusion that it was more show than it was a real effectiveness. I love the courage that says, hey, we've been doing this for a long time. This defines Microsoft, but we're not going to do it anymore. Yeah. Which leads me to going back to Satya Nadella. So now he's been named the CEO. As you've researched him, can you point out any unique qualities and even some of his life experiences that might have shaped his views on leadership? Because comparably to Steve Ballmer, they're very, very different people. Right. Yes. So on the surface, one is very, very loud and bombastic and on the <laughs> and the other is very kind of quiet and thoughtful. So that's a, a surface thing that's very striking immediately. What I would say about Satya that's very special, and it is the true definition of authenticity. And the true definition of authenticity basically means that you have reflected on your life's experiences, that you've drawn some lessons from them, and that you have incorporated these lessons into who you are as a leader, into everything you do, basically. And what Satya learned in his life experiences is that empathy for people in very, very different circumstances than you is really critical for everything. And it didn't come naturally to him. He had to learn it. And I think the two of those things together, the importance of a quality like empathy which requires listening and connecting to people. And the fact that even if it doesn't come naturally, and he talks about himself as, you know, your stereotypical engineer who isn't about those kinds of things, but he was faced with it 
And he learned, he worked on it and he got very good at it. And I think it's that quality of authenticity that really sets him apart from other people who talk about being authentic, but for whom it's not as deeply rooted, shall we say. Whoa. There's a lot I want to ask you. I know his story that he had a son that had asphyxiation before he was born that led to cerebral palsy. And I know in interviews that I've read, he's sort of felt the victim as perhaps we all would instinctively, like, how could this happen to my child? But that led him to a greater understanding. Do you think that that's what influenced him to be empathetic? Or was there some other life event? Or how did he get there? You know, I, I don't know Satya's life inside out. He certainly points to this example as something that's had a very profound influence in his life. To experiences in his family as something that has had a very profound influence on how he sees this. I think his relationship with Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer were profound influences on him as well. One of the things that I've found interesting is that he has another child who has special needs, and he writes about this in his autobiography. And it was in the context of trying to figure out with his wife how might they best support this child that they ran into Carol Dweck's book about growth mindset. And they started learning about that concept in the context of a student learning and making the most of what they have. And it was there and then that the kind of light bulb arose that this applies in my organization as well. This is a concept that I can also use at Microsoft. And if you want very briefly, the idea of fixed versus growth mindset is that when faced with a challenge, and the original research on this was on children in school, when faced with something really hard, you could either say, well, I'm just not good at this, so why bother? Or you could say, I just need to keep at it until I get it. You know, I I love the challenge of it. In one case, you have a fixed mindset about what your capabilities are. You, You have them or you don't, if they're innate or not. And in the other case, you say, well, actually, I can develop this with practice and energy and effort. And in the research, they found that kids with very similar capacities but different mindsets got very different outcomes. And the reason for that is you have very different learning behavior. If you have a fixed mindset, you just say, let me just invest in what I already know how to do. If you have a growth mindset, you say, let me learn what I don't know how to do now. And that's what he was trying to make happen at Microsoft because they had a political environment, because they had an assessment process that pit people against each other. People were not going to take risks in doing things that were going to make them look bad or dumb or silly or stupid. Therefore, they weren't going to do a lot of innovative things because it was much more important that they were able to prove how capable they were. And so he made a very direct analogy from that personal situation to the work situation. And in a way that didn't castigate people, that basically said, look, (laughs) we just need to all come together and approach this with a growth perspective. How did he get people to trust him in that regard? Because you made the association that this was not a culture where people felt comfortable taking risks and sticking their neck out, if you will. And now he's saying, hey, 
in order for us to succeed, we need people to grow. And in order to grow, you're going to have to have the mindset that you have the capacity to develop skills and expertise that you don't have right now that might threaten your sense of who you are and what your career is going to be. But we'll get you to the other side of this if you'll meet us halfway. I mean, that's kind of what I think you were implying. But how did he get people to feel comfortable with this? Well, he was a big role model for it. First of all, you know, there was a very clear change of regime. And he did surround himself with people who exemplified this kind of spirit And there were a lot of decisions made in the early days that basically said we're going to do things differently. Things like going to open source, things like putting the Microsoft suite on the iOS system. Those are things that were really signaling we're not going to be Windows centric anymore. We're going to do different things. So it's not just words. There's actions that are signaling that things are different. And then what happened, which is really important, is course you're going to get screw-ups and they did get lots of them and when people screwed up he stuck up for them. One of the biggest cultural changes that Nadella made almost immediately was to redefine True North kind of the values that you were speaking of but as from a business standpoint he spent 26 billion dollars to buy LinkedIn, seven and a half billion to buy GitHub and he elected to enter obviously the cloud computing business in a huge way. So tell us about his vision in making these choices to embrace these new technologies and tell us what wisdom leaders should take from this in terms of taking some bold risks to move the business forward. Yeah. You know, I'm not a business strategy expert, but Satya was obviously appointed because he was a technical person who understood the future of technology and understood the way their customers' needs were evolving in a way that kind of just required much more technological sophistication and much more integration across a range of things and, you know, being able to work in a very mobile way, not just at a desktop, but also starting to bring in artificial intelligence and smart dashboards. And so he really needed to upgrade the technological capacity and the kinds of things that they could offer to their customers. And part of that was done by acquisitions. Okay. Something else that whet my appetite that goes back to something you said about Satya being authentic. And you actually, I think you said in the language that he was doing the work, like he did the work. So what's your advice to any manager listening to this at any level on getting to know oneself? How do you know thyself? What's the process that you advise to really dig in and understand your motivations and your instincts, your behaviors, and so forth? You know, I think it's not just that. I think it's not just your instincts and your motivations. It's also understanding what you really believe and what you really kind of want to make a stand on. And I think it's in that sense that Satya had very deep beliefs about what motivates people and empowers them based on the life experiences that he has had. I think that there's lots of superficial ways of engaging in self-reflection. I mean, this is not spending some quiet time. I think what it is, is all of us have had really challenging experiences in our lives that have lessons in them. And the way you learn what they are is partly by reflecting on them, partly by talking to other people about what they mean and what you've learned and really trying to articulate what the lessons are there. 
and it's a lifelong process. It's not something that you do in a few days course. That's very insightful. So thank you. Changing the direction of a huge ship isn't simple as setting a new course. You know, you just can't say, hey, we're going in a new direction, particularly given where they had been. And your research shows that at least 40,000 Microsoft employees had to not just change how they worked, many had to learn entirely new technologies. So how did Nadella position all this change in a way that energized them and accelerated their growth? I mean, what did he do to teach them? Did he just say, hey, you got to go out and figure this out? Or did he develop the training and put people through it? What kind of an investment did they make in people? How did he approach it and how did they succeed with it? Okay. So 40,000 is just a sales organization. Microsoft is about 130,000 people, just to (laughs) clarify the numbers. So it is a very huge ship. And this is classic change management. You have to be very clear about what the vision is. And he had some ideas around growth mindset that were very much linked to both a business imperative and his diagnosis about what was wrong inside the organization that needed fixing. But he took a very, very inclusive approach. He talked to a lot of people. He spent the first six months of his tenure on a kind of a listening tour. He got the top 150 people together and he gave them the task of saying, how are we going to define what growth mindset means to us specifically? Because it was kind of a big academic concept. They had to translate it into something that made sense to them. And he delegated that to what he called the culture cabinet, which was they broke up these 150 into groups. Each group had a leader and those 15 odd leaders had to get together and figure out what were going to be the pillars of this. They decided on three things. They decided on customer obsession, which is very clear and obvious. A second one was diversity and inclusion, which is about all different kinds of diversity and inclusion. But really, the message was to say, perhaps it felt like before there was an inner circle here and everybody else was peripheral and had no influence. And that's not going to be the case anymore because some of the least influential are working in some of the areas that are most vital for our future. And the third plank was one Microsoft. We're going to do away with the silos. And then begins the really hard work of change management. You know, at the individual level, you have to have senior managers role modeling it. Mm -hmm. You have to communicate it in lots of different ways. You have to look at what are the processes and systems that are giving contradictory messages and how do we change them? How do we reinforce the message? How do we have conversations about what it actually means in different contexts? That's really the tough slug of any change process is that. Well, earlier you mentioned a senior leader, somebody who had been with Microsoft for three decades, Jean-Philippe Courtois. And what stood out for me is that he had been at the company for nearly three decades before Nadella took over. And we might assume was deeply entrenched in the old company ways, like a dog unable to learn new tricks. But not only did Nadella immediately not replace him with someone he knew could quickly move the company where he wanted to go, it seems that Jean-Philippe had the ability to quickly reinvent himself in the Nadella mold. So what struck me in reading your report is that what happens often is that somebody will come in and say, hey, we need a major cultural change and we're going to put new people at the top 
who already have the new values so that they can accelerate it. And instead, Nadella said, no, I'm going to work with who's already here. I'm going to teach him what I want him to do and then let him go and do that. So what's your take on that? Is he willing to take those kinds of risks a lot? Well, you know, Nadella did a mix of things, right? He brought in some new people to his team and he worked with people who were already there and he's making some judgments about people's capacity to get on board with what he's trying to do and also role model that. I mean, let's not forget, you know, Microsoft, like any other organization, has to move in a new direction while still generating revenues and making profits from the old businesses. At the time of the case study on Jean-Philippe's organization, 50% of the revenues were from the old business and 50% were from the cloud. And so you do need people who know how to run the old business in a way that allows you the slack to experiment with the new. So I think that's one important aspect. The other aspect is as a leader, you need to make bets. You know, none of us come in the perfect package of the skill sets and mindsets and styles that are going to be perfect. And Nadella wasn't into picking mini-me's, you know, he, he was into picking people who he felt saw the vision, got behind it, and we're going to give their all to make it happen, including making changes to one's leadership style if that's what's needed. Now, those things don't happen overnight. You know, nobody quickly reinvents themselves in any mold Mm -hmm. overnight. Mm -hmm. When you have 30 years of ways of doing things, everybody adapts in a way in which you make progress and then (laughs) you fall back into old ways of doing things and then you make progress. But I think what's brilliant about Satya is that he truly believes in the growth mindset that people can change and evolve and adapt and learn. And he's been very good at picking people who could do that? Well, I mean, I think that that's the answer I was looking for. In other words, I mean, your guidance is to be patient with people and to set true north and let them display whether or not they're on board with it or not, right? Rather than just make the quick assumption. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with many leaders who, given the same opportunity that Nadella had, would just instinctively say, I'm going to move very quickly. I'm going to come in with my own people. I'm not going to give people an opportunity. Instead, Nadella said, no, I'm going to give people the opportunity. I'm going to be patient with this, patient expectancy, if you will. But nevertheless, I'm going to give people the opportunity to demonstrate to me that they can get on board quickly. And that requires a little bit of patience. So there's some wisdom there, right? I don't fully agree. I think he picked and chose. I think with some people, he said to himself, this is not going to work. And with other people, he said, I think they're going to evolve in the direction in which I'd like to see it. Well, I'm not suggesting that everybody made it. I'm suggesting that he gave everybody the opportunity to demonstrate that they can or cannot make it. I wasn't there. I just know that he was very deliberate in what he was doing. And he was very much picking for people who are on board with what he's trying to do. Okay, so you can't have major organizational change without expecting managers to change their behaviors, as you suggest. And Nadella expected some rather huge behavioral differences. And he introduced this program called Reimagining Managers, which specifically focused on teaching managers to care more about their people and even to more regularly coach them. So this is a big difference, big shift in how people had been managed 
themselves and how leaders were being expected to manage their people. So since caring about people and coaching are two of the key themes of this podcast, how did Nadella know to make that pivot? Because it's a pretty big one. Right. So the one who actually introduced this program is his number two, who heads a sales organization, Jean-Philippe Courtois. And so this was a program that was introduced for all people managers within the sales organization. It's still a fairly new program. And the reason why this was introduced is not just because they have a value of caring about people, but because they realized that the more the more the traditional job of a manager was being automated in many ways in that you do have a lot of technology that's giving you the information that you need on a real-time basis. That leaves a lot of time for the manager then to not just have to be getting informed and being in control and monitoring and evaluating. It's all pretty clear. That leaves time for the manager that to then be able to ask probing questions. I see revenues are double here than what they are there. What's the difference? What's going on? I see we were forecast to do this, but it didn't quite happen. What can we learn from that? How can we avoid that happening in the past? And so um, they realized that what was missing to be able to deliver for their customers was being able to engage in learn-it-all conversations with their people about what was happening as opposed to that's a bad result, you didn't make target, or Mm -hmm. a more kind of evaluative and controlling result. And it became clear to them, and this is also through Nadella's example, who models the coaching leadership style par excellence with the probing questions that he asks in order to learn what's behind what he's seeing and in order to learn about the person in front of him. And so having seen it at the level of Nadella and having understood that the only way they were going to really be able to serve their customers was to be able to have these kinds of probing, open-ended conversations about what's happening and that managers didn't know, had focused on managing product and technology rather than people. They didn't have that skill set. And so that's why they put in the Reimagining Managers program to train everybody in the coaching skill set. So I'm imagining that this was principally sales data that they had automated, right? Is that true? Yes. Okay. So they have the sales data. And now let's say that the results aren't anywhere near where they're supposed to be. And a senior manager goes to a more junior manager with the intent of having a conversation around what's going wrong. But what I'm picking up from you and I want to get clarity on is the tone of that conversation is rather than threatening and, you know, you didn't do your job and something bad is going to happen if you don't turn these results around. This is much more collaborative on how can the two of us solve this? Is that true? Yes. I think that's a great way of capturing it. So that's quite a huge shift. So you've taken fear out of the equation in a major way. Yes. And who's responsible for that? Well, that's the change that Jean-Philippe has been implementing in the sales organization, but as part of his job to carry through the bigger cultural change that Satya Nadella orchestrated for the organization as a whole. 
but it's within his sales organization that this particular training that's being rolled out to all people managers is taking place. For them, this is major as well. I have an article coming out in which I use this particular example in great detail in the Harvard Business Review that's going to be called The Leader as Coach. And it's not just about the actual coaching skills, but what they're doing is using coaching skills as a tool for organizational transformation, they're realizing that this is a skill set that they have to scale at the level of the organization if they're truly going to be a learning organization. Well, it sounds like automation helped them in this, but one of the detractors from having this happen in other organizations is that in many cases, managers are required to be individual contributors. You know, we haven't really, in some cases, given people the freedom and the time to be able to devote themselves to coaching. They have so many other individual responsibilities beyond managing their team. And it sounds like Microsoft said, by virtue of the fact that a lot of their data, I suppose, has been automated, but perhaps in other ways, they've made it sure that people have the dedicated time to spend time with people to coach them and to help them get better. Is that true? Yes, that's been a very explicit part. So, yeah, partially it is that they have automated a lot of things that, you know, they don't need to do manual forecasts. But they have also made a very concerted effort through using their own data. They realize that a lot of the things that people spend their time on, you know, meetings that are not very productive, things that are for show, that is time taken away from either these kind of conversations between a manager and his or her direct report or between any of them and their customer. And so they have been very consciously streamlining the amount of kind of internal, bureaucratic, political, FaceTime work that needs to be happening so that people can then spend the time, the upside, either in coaching conversations or with their customers. I'll give you an example. They have streamlined a template for a PowerPoint presentations so that it's very hard for people to give any presentation that uses more than 10 slides because they know that as these things get out of control, you're basically working on making pretty slides as opposed to using your time more productively. You know, I've worked in an environment where they did the exact same thing. And then what ended up happening was people ended up spending an inordinate amount of time trying to perfect those 10 slides. It became more about the presentation than it did about the idea. Have you seen that happen too? No, 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 no. They've been battling that very, very clearly. They want people laser focused on coaching conversations with their direct reports and conversations with their customers to learn more about their customers. And it doesn't happen overnight, but Mm -hmm. they're really to drive out this kind of waste of time. And they have metrics, you know, they have a product called My Analytics that shows how you're spending your time. So they have data and metrics that show what your time is going into that can correlate to objectives that they care about. By the way, the way Microsoft is using these tools that allow people to monitor how they're spending their time is very much in the spirit of helping them spend it more productively and help them achieve the goals that they have for their customers. And so most of the people that I talked to really welcomed it as a tool, just like they like their Fitbits. This is something that's helping them be more effective. How does that work? 
How do they measure how somebody spends their time? Well, they've been piloting it on themselves. When you're using Microsoft Outlook and you're using, you know, whatever Yammer-like internal network, and when you're using their calendar, everybody, the norm is for people to write down what they're using, and they, everybody gets analytics on how they've been spending their time. Well, that's really great insight because obviously we're all familiar with some kinds of technologies that are being used to monitor people. You're spending too much time doing this or not enough time on customer service calls and so forth. And I have heard that too, by the way, from Microsoft employees that this is helping them identify where they're spending their time and how they can utilize it more effectively. And that's the goal. So as long as this thing is widely embraced, I think it's fantastic that they have this. And I'm sure there are people listening to this thinking, I wish I had greater optics into where my time is being spent because I think sometimes it really surprises people. So thank you for adding that. Herminia, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a quick break from our discussion and we move into what we call the heartbeat round. So to give us a little more personal insight into the biggest influences in your life and what has shaped your leadership philosophy, I'm going to ask you a few more questions, but these require a quick, instinctive, and brief answer. So in other words, your goal is to answer each of these in a heartbeat. Ready to go? Yep. <laughs> okay. I need you more enthusiastic. Yes, of course I'm ready to go. <laughs> okay, great. A cultural value every organization should have. Adaptability. Your favorite word. Learn. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading. New York Times. One thing you greatly miss about living in Cuba. I left too young. One thing you greatly miss about living in the United States. My family. And one thing that makes you incredibly happy about living in London. I walk to work. Oh, cool. The quality you admire most in other people. Kindness. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Live in a different country. A book that profoundly shaped your life. A book called Transitions by Bill Bridges. Transitions making sense of life's changes. One subject you believe all managers would be wise to bone up on now. The psychology of human development. A CEO or global leader you most admire today? Christine Lagarde, head of the IMF. Life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life? Breathing. Your best coaching tip? It's quite a trick to learn to ask good questions. Learn to ask good questions. The quality that derails the most leadership careers? Arrogance. I'd say, by the way, that that has come up about 99% of the time, interestingly. <laughs> yeah. Your synonym for the word heart? Love. Skill improvement you're working on right now. I'm not good with technology. I'm trying to get better at it. And the most underestimated and undervalued leadership trait of all. That's a hard one. I think we value most of them and we have long lists. I would say openness to the world around you. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for playing. Those are wonderful answers. I'm going to go back and re-listen to these. And I want to get back to a couple of other questions I have before we let you go from our discussion. So thank you. Hermine, if I can move away from the Microsoft conversation before I let you go, I'd like to ask, I'm sure you're familiar with this business roundtable declaration recently where all these organizations and their CEOs declared that they're not going to be primarily focused on their shareholders any longer. It's going to be much broader to include their communities and their employees, society as a whole, you know, well-being and so forth. I'm wondering if you have an opinion on whether or not this is window dressing, what motivated it to happen now, and what percentage of organizations do you think are 
are actually going to implement this in the way that they expressed it. I think smart and progressive business leaders have realized that meaning is important to people and therefore having a sense of purpose that is meaningful to them is a big part of what motivates them at work. And they understand that shareholder value is not the only motivating factor and that we live in a world that's intertwined with everything else. And so it's not surprising. We've been talking about this for a very long time. And what I can't answer is why now in particular, maybe the messages have started to sink in or the weight of the research on the importance of this or the number of scandals or the low engagement numbers or all these things that have built up. I think the weight of evidence is in this direction. And I think probably their heart is in the right place, but it's like the Microsoft story. It takes a while to change a culture that has been very geared to a different way of operating. And so it's going to take a lot of persistence and role modeling and repetition and humility and learning to make it happen. I love your language, by the way. They have their heart in the right place. I happen to agree with you. And there are people that have asked me, and I think from my point of view, some companies are going to be more committed to this than others. Some of the organizations on the list that signed this are already there. They're fully embodied everything that Microsoft is trying to achieve along the lines of the coaching that you're working on and describing. They're fully there. But I think that it's a good thing for all of us to think that organizations are starting to think that it's not just about the shareholders. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, we've been talking about that as long as I've been around. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I agree. Herminia, we'll have to have you back on one day to discuss your leadership books. And as we close out this chat, though, I wonder if there's something about Microsoft and what they did to transform their culture that we've yet to discuss and that needs calling out. As managers build the courage to lead in more caring, supportive, and nurturing ways, what final piece of advice do you have for them? You know, I think there's a lot to be said for finding inspiration in somebody who has managed to make it work and has shown that these values are not antithetical to business results, but in fact can promote it. I think that a lot of people have been very truly inspired by Satya Nadella. I was skeptical myself when I started seeing things. And as I talked to people, they said, no, no, he's the real McCoy. He's the real thing. And I think for a lot of people in his organization who maybe didn't have the messages clear in their heads about the importance of managing in this way, they saw the effects by working with him and were inspired and modeled it because you have to see it in order to believe it and to give you the courage to try something that gets you out of your comfort zone. So I think the importance of having a role model that inspires you is a big lesson out of this case. And he went looking for more people to do that throughout the organization. In other words, he asked his top leaders to be that for their people as well. So it's not just as a CEO that Satya becomes this inspirational force, but was he expecting his leadership team to do the same as they cascade through the organization? Of course. Okay. On behalf of my listening audience, Herminia, I want to thank you again for joining me on the podcast. It's been a wonderful pleasure. Thank you so much, Mark. Me too. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. As we close, I wanted to announce that our audience has just grown to include listeners in 123 different countries. And that statistic is incredibly encouraging and exciting. 
As many of you know, our goal with every episode is to reinforce the thesis that leadership, which intentionally balances the mind with the heart, yields infinitely greater performance. And that this message now resonates so strongly with people all around the world shows just how anxious all of us are to see organizations make the big pivot and embrace management practices that are more suitable to the needs of our 21st century workforce. I want to thank you very much for tuning in and for introducing us to your friends. The expansion of our listening base is really the only metric we have that validates whether these podcasts are helpful and worthwhile. And so you very much play a huge role in motivating us to continue. As always, I want to thank my team of key supporters, which include Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Kerry Finnessy, my webmaster, Randy Yant, and my masterful sound engineer and editor, Mr. Eric Oz. And until next time, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now.